arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal? Al. 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 What the hell? That was Hal, the controlling computer in 2001, a space odyssey, a Stanley Kubrick film. These are stories of roads not taken and worlds within worlds, where justice is served to those who step beyond the edge of time, space, reality, good and evil, and life and death. I really like tonight's featured short stories. They're all completely different in substance and setting. All three stories were written during my time in Los Angeles. Channel 5 was running a Twilight Zone marathon. What can I say? We'll hear The Monstrosity, Thinking of You, and In My Image. The Monstrosity. Vincent Montessori has built more malls than anyone without seeing the destruction in his wake. Montessori must find the key to existence or face eternal nightmare. Thinking of you. Who controls the freighter Praktiken, the Hubrick artificial life intelligence, or humans? What is real and what is merely the desire of the Hubrick? Who will live and who will die? In my image, Herbert Frederick is the new plant supervisor putting pressure on Kluger. Only problem is, Frederick possesses supernatural and quite evil powers that are used against Kluger inside the plant. I'll be back at the end of this episode to discuss these three stories, so let us begin episode three of Compilation by Robert P. Fitton. The Monstrosity by Robert P. Fitton. Vincent Montessori leaned back in the smooth leather seat as his driver drove the limo across town. He loosened his silk tie, gripped the phone, and picked up his drink from the side table. 
Listen, you chump. Either you get the material like you were supposed to, or it's over. I'll ruin you as a supplier. He clicked off the line and slurped the bourbon into his mouth. Damn these people. They all work for me. The limo swung into a new mall parking lot. People lined the rope barriers, protesting his arrival. His age rushed to the car, opening the door as the limo glided to a stop. Michael leaned inside. Everything is set, Mr. Montessori. Why are those damned idiots out there? They want the environment back. Montessori strained as he got out of the car. The shouting was louder in the cooler outside air. Screw them. I gave them the mall. What the hell? We're talking about progress here. Yes, sir. A burst of sunlight through a break in the clouds brightened the mall's pink granite facade, spanning three stories above the arched entrance. He had spent a fortune on reflective glass sheets along the upper two wings. The protests intensified as he was escorted to the front entrance. Money grubber! shouted some bland-faced woman in jeans and a sweatshirt. Montessori stopped and took a few steps toward all of them. Why don't you ingrates get back to the woods with the rest of the animals? Hey, man, you ruined our land. A bearded man cried and raised his fist. Yeah, well, call the Sierra Club. He started to open the entrance doors. A contingent of local leaders lined the inner neon sign corridor. The fat little mayor in his plaid green suit stuck out his hand. Well, it's an honor, Mr. Montessori. Yeah, well, if it's such an honor, why are those scum out there yelling insults at me? I'm sorry, the uh, court order... Montessori rolled his eyes to Michael and focused on the towering water fountain under the skylight dome ahead. He walked ahead of his aide. Well, I see they finally got the correct water pressure, Michael. Reply, somebody yelled behind him. He stopped and so did the crowd following him. A man in an olive army jacket and jeans screamed like a nut from an insane asylum. Cops chased him up the corridor. You ruined the earth. You're a criminal. You're a criminal. Cops pounced on the guy and wrestled him to the tiles. I'm prepared to go to jail. The mayor moved next to Montessori. Well, Mr. Montessori, I have a private room reserved for you away from these, uh... No, I wish to talk to this man. Hey, Mr. Montessori, do you really think that's a good idea? Montessori walked by Michael as the man squirmed in the office's arm locks. Hey, you think you're a real sharpie, don't you? He pointed his finger at the ruddy man's face. Let me tell you, anyone can protest. Few men can build, you coward. You're a destroyer, a money grubber. I made my money by hard work. Hard work, what I deemed right. Mr. McNabb, John C. McNabb. And what you think may not be right. The mayor and the assembled guests stared at him as he grinned at McNabb. And what gives you the right to trespass on private property, Mr. McNabb? Maybe you should ask that question yourself. The only difference is that you have the money and the power. I only have my beliefs. Montessori closed his eyes for a moment. Oh, I'm touched. But you people had every chance to stop this project. And democracy is at work, Mr. McNabb. The town council voted this mall into existence. Michael stood closer. I think we should move along, sir. Montessori nodded, but McNabb started again. Yeah, the town council voted after you paid them to vote. Get him out of here. Lock him up, said Montessori as he kept walking. The mall manager rushed up to him as he continued toward the water fountain. What do you want? 
We, we uh, might uh, be sued. I think he should be released. Montessori stopped and looked back toward McNabb, being dragged outside. Then he faced the little mall manager. You're fired! Sir? I have a wife and three children, Mr. Montessori. That's not my problem. He continued his walking pace. The manager protested to the mayor and Montessori smiled, shaking his head as he approached the fountain. The fountain blossomed into a wide-spreading surge, bubbling into the rich blue mosaic rim below. When he turned, the manager, arms extended, ran at a full clip. Montessori was hit in the chest. His legs buckled and he careened into the fountain. The cool moisture saturated his suit and his head smacked against the rim tiles. Darkness and a floating sensation took his thoughts into a confused, half-conscious jumble. He swished his arms through the water and rose upward. Sunlight covered the water sheets, cascading into the pool. He did not see Michael or the mayor's people. Michael! The water dripped off his clothes. He removed his suit coat and tossed it over the rim. The mall behind him was empty. Where the hell is everybody? He trudged through the water and climbed onto the vinyl floor tiles. The neon store lights blazed down the vacant mall's length. His mushy shoes left a track of water to the first storefront. Blue digits were illuminated on the register readouts, and lights blazed as if the store was open for business. He rubbed the stinging lump on the back of his head and shuffled to the side corridor, retracing his steps to the outside entrance. Well, this is damn strange. Gray-layered clouds moved quickly above the yellow fall foliage across the parking lot. Orange-vested police held back, shouting protesters behind the ropes. Montessori gazed back through the empty mall to the fountain as he gasped the aluminum door handle. The door was locked when he pushed. Stepping uh, out, Mr. Montessori? He saw McNabb's reflection in the sheet glass. Are you the cause of all this? Indirectly. Montessori spun around. Well, open the doors before I have you arrested. McNabb raised his head skyward and grinned. You never learn, do you? McNabb was less than 15 feet away when he turned. I said, open the door. I'm going to my limo. Where's Michael? You know, Mr. Montessori, I have no problem with people making money. I'm glad, he said, rattling the door. Is that what you do with your life? You aren't in judgment of my life. I'll get out of here, you bastard. In the glass, McNabb stepped closer. Oh, you're free to leave this mall. Montessori grit his teeth and turned. He pointed his finger. Just because you've accomplished nothing in your worthless life. I can go with you out the door if you wish. I don't need you, McNabb. The door moved. Montessori tripped on the threshold and stumbled onto slick brown tiles. Using a narrower mall corridor similar to a shopping center, he had built in Rochester, New York, 16 years ago. Shoppers moved quickly and music blared through the overhead ceiling speakers. The outside parking lot was smaller and packed with cars. The trees were green. Montessori pressed his lips firmly together and opened the door again. The outside lot was now replaced by a brightly painted cement floor of another mall. McNabb, in his army jacket and jeans, stood with one foot on an oak bench under an artificial tree. Hey, welcome. Am I dead? Did that blow on the head kill me? Nope. Okay, then tell me what the hell's going on here. 
Shoppers passed by and moved into yet another outside lot. This time, Montessori strutted past McNabb and into the mall. I haven't got to be where I am in my life without trying, and I will try to get out of here. Oh, your life has been quite an effort. Shut up. McNabb trailed behind him as he entered the food court a few minutes later and put his hands on his moistened pants. His swiftly beating heart fueled a hyper-anxiety throughout his body. Finding a way out required cunning. He darted into a joke shop and raced through the aisles into the back room. The kid at the counter yelled something when he reached the metal door within the cinder block wall. He twisted the greasy cold brass knob and banged on the door. With several sudden thrusts against the metal, he loosened the door. Now he produced long, gasping, deep breaths. He kicked the knob until the door was ajar. Pervading darkness spread before him. He fought to catch his breath. You need to use the uh, outside mall entrances, Mr. Montessori, said McNabb as he entered the stockroom. What's out there? Nothing. Smart guy. You listen to me, you twister. I'll get out of this. This monstrosity? Yeah. What's your price? Every man has his price. McNabb's face had that serious protester look. I'm afraid I don't have a price. You'll have to find the key. He looked into the darkness again. The key to what? When he turned, McNabb was gone and the joke store clerk stood in the stockroom doorway. If you don't get out of here, mister, I'm going to have to call mall security. I own this mall. I own them all. He stomped past the clerk through the store and back into the mall. A group of young kids with baseball hats and ears pierced with multiple studs moved up the ramp to his right. They laughed at him as he walked by. He thought he recognized one voice. Vinny, you're old. Montessori stopped. The kids looked familiar. How do I get out of here? Same way you got in, dude. He squinted and looked at a kid with a thin ponytail. Stevie, Stevie Arnold. Vinny, Vinny Montessori. <laughs> he laughed and lit a cigarette. And me, Johnny Epstein said the shorter kid. You used to beat me up, Vinny. You remember that? Montessori started forward again. You can get out by yourself, Vinny. He stopped and pulled out a soaked $100 bill from his wallet. 100 bucks gets me out of here. You don't pay off people, dude. You work with the people. You don't beat them up. You treat them with respect. Montessori held up the soggy bill. Stevie walked closer, clamped his hand over the bill, and rolled it into a ball. Then he threw it back to his friends. Johnny deposited it in a trash bin near the wall phones. Montessori said nothing as he headed for the phones. He quickly dialed his driver's cell phone. The line rang briskly, but McNabb answered the phone. This is uh, John McNabb. Where the hell are you? asked Montessori as he reached the trash bin for the compressed bill. The plastic bag was empty and the kids were gone. McNabb, I need your help. I thought you wanted me arrested. Heat of the moment. Listen, I don't know what you've done or how you've done this, but I need to get out. I can't keep opening doors into other malls. This is insane. I told you, you find the key, find it before your time is up. What do you mean? Look at your watch. It's 8 p.m. The mall closes in uh, an hour. You have one hour to find the key, 
or you'll be forever rushing through doors into new malls with people who don't know you from Adam. Montessori held the phone. No, no, please. We can make a deal. I know we can. What do you want? You don't understand. Fifty-nine minutes. The line clicked. Montessori hung up the phone. Maybe somebody else would deal with him. He strutted directly to the outside entrance, stopping at the door. Rows of cars parked along a wide expanse tempted him. Keeping him within this perpetual trap did not make sense. He opened the door, but instead of walking to the outside lot, he stepped into a lavish two-story mall with glistening granite tiles. No, this can't be happening. Somebody get me out of here. People in the mall were oblivious to his presence. He followed the signs up the escalator to the mall manager's second-floor office. The secretary looked up as he raced by her desk and entered the manager's office. I demand to be taken out of this place. His throat tightened when his fifth-grade teacher looked up from behind her desk. The classroom, with its long black chalkboard and writing compositions pinned on the wall, was exactly as he had left it 50 years ago. Well, good morning, Vincent. I'm glad to see you're on time. Mrs. Wobble, how can you be here? I would ask a better argument in logic. How can you be here? We're dead, aren't we? I died when I fell into that fountain. No, you aren't dead. You're simply here. Where is here? I don't know. Why? He asked, sitting in an adjacent seat. Mrs. Warble pointed her bent finger at him as she did when he was a kid. We are here to learn, Vincent. I am your teacher. Don't expect me to give you the answers. I'll pay you money. I have 500 with me. It's a little mushy, but... Vincent, how many times have I found you and your friends gambling in the schoolyard? You must really begin to understand. Montessori briefly closed his eyes. I'm not a kid gambling in the schoolyard. I'm a very successful man, Mrs. Warble. Look at my clothes. I have my own limos. Houses, servants. It is in serving that we are served. I'll spare me your schoolteacher platitudes he said, standing. Can you get me out of here or not? She lifted her spindly hand slowly and pointed at the Roman numeral wall clock. The minute hand clicked forward to twenty past eight. Your time grows short. Ah, he grumbled and retreated from the classroom. When he opened the door, he was inside his penthouse apartment on the east side. Karen, younger and her blonde hair flowing to her shoulders, walked in with a drink across the plush white carpet. Karen! Well, congratulations, Vinny. You're about to get your wish. A mall that goes on forever. <laughs> I must be dead because you're dead, Karen. Thanks to you and your philandering, you're a time away with your company. You have to help me. Oh? His face flushed. Montessori rushed forward. He grabbed her shoulders and pressed his fingers into her turtleneck jersey. My life depends on getting out of here. I don't have answers. You fool, you have answers. I could talk my way out of it. <laughs> you always could. Just get me to the right person. Karen smiled. Her teeth were perfect. You want the right person, do you? Is it McNabb? I don't know any McNabb. Mal Gorman can get you out. Mal Gorman was a son of a bitch. Karen backed up and he released his grip. Yeah. 
Mel Gorman was a son of a bitch, but you're a bigger son of a bitch, Vinny. He had the largest company in the state, and to you sabotaged his projects, sent out men who constructed shoddy buildings under his name. Sure, Mel can get you out. Where is he? She grinned again and tilted her head back as she laughed. <laughs> in the mall! In the mall! Which mall? Her round blue neon clock neared 8.30. Montessori sprinted out the glossy white doors and was back on the second floor of the mall. He leaned over the transparent plastic edge and scanned the passing crowd for Gorman. He leaped down the slotted metal escalator stairs and slid on the wax tiles as he ran past the mall shops. When he entered another series of malls, ten minutes later, his side ache and chest pain stirred more anxiety. He staggered to a circular bench surrounding indoor trees and an upper skylight. With his moist handkerchief, he dabbed the sweat from his forehead. His breathing was unsteady again, and he only had twenty minutes left. In a barber shop across the mall, Gorman sat in the chair as an older barber clipped his hair. Montessori stuffed the handkerchief in his pocket and tumbled across the corridor. Mel! Mel! Gorman glanced from the mirror and smirked. Well, Charlie, meet my competitor, Vincent Montessori. Charlie the barber. You need a trim, Mr. Montessori? What I need is to get the hell out of here. Karen said I could deal with you, Mel. Charlie maneuvered the scissors under his ear. What do you want me to do, Vinny? Get me out. How much will it cost me? How much have you got? Montessori pulled out the wad of matted bills. Five century notes. Gorman shook his hand. Always the dealer, Vinny. I don't need your money. I'm not saying I wouldn't take it. Montessori put the money in his hand. Ten grand when I get out. Sounds like a good deal. I accept. Good, good, good. I'll show that bastard McNabb. I don't know how the hell he did this. He gazed back to the mall corridor and then at his watch. Ten to nine. So what do I do? Just walk out? If that's your plan. Well, of course it is. I won't be trapped in here. Charlie brushed Gorman's neck and pulled back the barber's striped cloth. Gorman stood and moved toward Montessori. He scooped up the wet bills. Vinny, you screwed up. Deal's off? Go ahead. Go back out there and leave. I will. Montessori did not turn as he left the barbershop. Ahead, a priest blocked the mall's exit and a number of children, clothes soiled and torn, loitered in the corridor. Now what the hell is this? These children are innocent, said the priest. Their fate was to have been born into a tough world. Hey, listen, everybody makes his own way. I did. True. I wouldn't argue that. But people need help from time to time, Vinny. You know, I'm talking about those small decisions we make every day. You have to work at being aware of what you're doing in your life down to the second. Maybe it involves a simple decision to love. Nothing more. Gorman stood with Charlie in the barbershop, and Mrs. Warble walked from the center of the mall with his schoolyard friends. Montessori stood rigid as the overhead speakers clicked on, and a voice interrupted the music. May I have your attention, please? The time is now 8.55. The mall will be closing in five minutes. Please bring your purchases to your store register, and thank you for shopping at the Hillside Mall. 
I'm out of here. Montessori spun and bolted through the outside entrance. Michael stood next to the limo's door. He went for it. He went for it. Gorman was always the sucker for the raw deal. Aren't you sorry? asked Michael, holding the door. His face was solid. Are you? Sorry I was trapped. Screw Gorman. Michael slammed the door and walked around the limo. He opened the driver's door and got inside. What the hell do you think you're doing? Montessori pulled on the door handle as the engine revved. He ran a few steps into the lot. Why, you son of a bitch, you're fired. He looked at his reflection in the mall window glass. His office was only ten minutes away. He quickly moved to the phones along the concrete wall, but had trouble breathing as he lifted the receiver. Around the parking lot, cars and the distant trees slowly faded. The resulting darkness reminded him of an eclipse. In only a few seconds, a nothingness deeper than night surrounded him. The phone signal gyrated and he turned toward the mall's now brightly lit interior. As the air thinned, he dropped the phone line and fell to his knees, gasping for air. He crawled across the cement and reached the metal frame door. The door opened and McNabb looked down. You can't survive out there, Mr. Montessori. I made a deal. He sucked in the air, filtering in from outside. You did, but uh, not with Gorman. Gave him cash. More was coming. Who the hell else was I supposed to deal with, McNabb? Never ends. McNabb extended his hand and pulled Montessori up. Montessori's joints throbbed as he stood inside and the door closed. McNabb had an odd smile as he shook his head. The only deal we really make, Mr. Montessori, is with ourselves. Thinking of You by Robert P. Fitton Koppel hated the ubiquitous Hubrick. He watched the freighter move through dead space. Green lantern beacons pulsed at intervals along its extensive hull, and the rear engine cones were masked in a brilliant crimson glow. Under the Hubick's watchful eye, it was Koppel's job to monitor the canisters in the cargo bays. He plugged the computer into the console data jack. His head shaved and covered with a blue healing patch still ached. Although he had refrained from taking the pain easer, he now shook the vial of orange liquid and poured it quickly down his throat. His station readings were complete and the yellow letters flashed on the computer screen. Freighter Proctican, register 68331092 Mission Earth Ponds Mining Station number 7. Space Colony 10, duration 45 days, 3 hours, 15 minutes. Cargo Bay pressure 34 to 35, canisters 112 to 115. He closed his eyes while the pain easer kicked in. The mission was finally nearing its completion. Fleet Command had ordered Koppel to join the Praktikin because he had expertise with the Huberk and the canisters, but Wooden failed to give him due respect. Koppel hated Wooden. He scanned down the base for the Hubert and focused on the forward viewer. The communications transmission had overridden the screen's image. Commander Wooden talked with the commissioner of SC-10 and in the lower right-hand corner, the countdown clock ticked away the seconds. Two hours, five minutes, 22 seconds. Commander Wooden, you have responsibilities as skipper of the Praktikin, but I am responsible for the lives of 18 million people. Wooden pointed at him. You're being over-anxious, Commissioner. Why do you say that? 
asked the commissioner. We have cut speed to hyperlight and we're decelerating. This colony is operating on minimal power, Commander. Without the Krontium, we have no power. This is a colony, not a planet. As I told you throughout this voyage, Fleet will take care of this. Whether you like it or not, it will be another two hours before we reach you. The Commissioner paused. Well, you understand my concern. Please, Commissioner, we've come this far. Just relax. Koppel deactivated the monitor. His head still ached. Then he heard the Hubrick speak from behind. Your hatred of Wooden may interfere with your assignment. Koppel spun around. He stood and looked up at the lean robot's black shell. Its transparent round head and larger-than-human skull pulsed with red and orange thoughts. When it scanned his mind, its impulses froze green and red. I didn't ask for your opinion, Hubrick. Its impulses slowed and stopped. And I don't need your reading my mind again. Evaluation of vessel personnel is my primary function. I must evaluate and assist. Look. I disagree with Fleet Command's new policy. Humans should perform human tasks. Koppel then concentrated. So leave me alone and don't read my thoughts. The Hubrick rotated on its glide base and hummed out of the console area. Koppel climbed the grid catwalk and leaned over the railing. The Hubrick sped past rows of towering orange canisters. Stay away from me. Wooden hobbled over the security monitor. He looked up at his navigator and engineer. Fleet Command has sent us a so-called expert who can't take the strains of a space voyage. Look how he treats the Hubrick, said the engineer. Oh, come on, Callahan, said Marsha. The man's been injured. Wooden looked at his navigator. Maybe you've grown a little too fond of our guest, Marsha. You really can't blame Koppel. Ever since the accident, Callahan took two steps toward her. Two of my men died in that accident. Wooden made a sour face in the console chair. How can you say that Hubrick was responsible for that scaffolding breaking? He wasn't. Ever since Koppel's come on board, he's giving me nothing but static. And I'm not in the mood for static, no sir. We're going to deliver those Krontium canisters to SC-10. Marsha spoke in a low voice as she gazed back at Wooden. Quantium is very dangerous. Please, maybe a half century ago when there are no refining techniques, said Callahan. No, I've read the discs. Instruments going wild, machinery failing, entire fleets disappearing into deep space. Well, I don't believe wild stories from the edge of the galaxy, Marsha, said Wooden. Two hours and the voyage is over. I've got a mind to put a security watch on Koppel right now. Marsha headed down the staircase and turned before she went down. Then you better watch me too, Commander. One hour, 56 minutes, 54 seconds. The pain throbbed inside Koppel's head. He finished his rounds, collecting the raw data from all the console stations. In less than two hours, he would leave Wooden and the rest of the Pratikans' crew behind. He sat at the last power station console and watched the blue digits moving downward on the countdown clock. John! He spun in the chair and saw Marsha's bright blue eyes and fluffy brown hair. Oh God, I thought it was that damn Hubrick again. How's your head? She studied the bandage. Okay, I'll get some attention on SC-10, but that Hubrick... I feel like Wooden has him watching and thinking my every move. 
Has Fleet gone completely insane with these things? You still think the Hubrick was responsible for that scaffold accident, don't you? Koppel nodded. He sat back in the chair and checked his readings. Marsha, the Hubrick was on the catwalk. I saw him. Circuits surging in his head just before it happened. He read my mind. He saw those two men fall into the canisters, and then I slipped. John, we're almost at SC-10. Did Wooden send you down here? No. You must think I'm cracking. The Hubrick appeared near the shiny green fuel pods across the room. Oh, can you read my mind now, Hubrick? The Hubrick said nothing and was scanning something else. John, let's go back to the recreation quarters. No, I have to take these readings. Do my job until I get to SC-10. He plugged his computer back into the jack. What in God's name is this? She rushed over and checked the screen. What's the matter? What's the matter? These readings, the canisters. Pressure is increasing. John, those readings are normal. Normal? He laughed and looked up at her. Stability is positive now and the power levels are increasing. John, I, I don't see any problem. It's him, screamed Koppel. He stood and pointed at the Hubrick across the room. He's controlling our minds. John, just leave me alone. Leave me alone, Marsha. Koppel watched her leave. He drew his Nacor pistol and slowly moved toward the other room. The Hubrick had left. Masha had not seen what was apparent on the screen. The pressure gradients would increase if the power levels rose. Then the canisters would explode and destroy the freighter. He sat and rechecked the readings. He heard the portal doors open and Callahan walked into the room. Callahan, you need to see this. John, I've been ordered by Wooden to escort you back to your quarters. Just relax until we get to SC-10. Koppel smiled and spun in the chair. Why? Your readings contradict the Hubrick's readings. Well, the Hubrick is wrong. He still didn't see the Hubrick. He's taking over your minds. Blaming the Hubrick doesn't make sense. Look for yourself, Callahan. Freighter Praktikin, register 68331022. Mission, Earth Ponds, Mining Station 7, Space Colony 10. Duration, 45 days, 4 hours, 35 minutes. Cargo base, 34 to 35, canisters, 112 to 115. Everything is up 14%. PSI is increasing. Temperature is increasing. Koppel grabbed his shoulders. Are you blind? Not only will we be killed, but the colony will lose its sustaining power. 18 million people will die. John, uh, those readings look normal. He looked back at the screen. All readings were normal. No, I, I, I saw them. I did. The Hubrick appeared by the pods again. His circuits brightened as he skimmed across the air toward the canisters. John, let's go back to your room. We'll get you some more pain easers for your head. Koppel scrutinized the readings one more time and then let Callahan walk him to the portal doorway. Before he reached his cabin, someone brought him more pain easer vials. He activated the cabin viewing screen once Callahan finally left and his cabin doors were secured. Power levels were up. Temperature was up. PSI was up. 50 degrees below critical. What the hell is going on here? He flipped the communication switch but intercepted Wooden's transmission to SC-10. All systems aboard the practic and are normal. We're ready for docking in 27 minutes.
Excellent. My people are already here, Wooden. Koppel turned, his head aching, and stared at the clear pain-easer vial. He was the only one on board taking the pain-easer. Quickly, he opened his locker drawer and took out more vials. Then he checked his Nikor pistol and headed to the steering room. As he ascended the mover platform, he wondered if somehow the pain-easer was blocking the Hubrick's control of his mind. Before he rose to the ground level, Wooden had turned. Papa, what the hell are you doing up here? You have to destroy the Hubrick. Wooden laughed. Oh, is that right? The Hubrick is a vital part of this ship. Then give all personnel pain-easers. Wooden winced and turned to his communications officer. Call security. No, that Hubick is controlling your minds. The Crontium has changed its function. Koppel, I've about had it with you. Koppel looked closer. Wooden and most of the people in the steering room were sweating, but no one seemed concerned. Temperature is rising on the ship. You should have fallen into those canisters, Koppel. Would have saved us all a lot of aggravation. Koppel ran to the main readout screen. Engine output is 45%, when it should be 6%. Where is security? asked Wooden as he walked over to the screen. He looked closely. Engine output is 11% and dropping. Usual deceleration. No, the star angles are changing. What is that thing doing to us? Sit down, Koppel. Koppel pulled up the Nikor pistol and back toward the stairway. He ran quickly, moving down two flights and rushed across the access corridor. When he entered the cargo bays, he fanned his pistol, ready to shoot the Hubrick on sight. About 20 meters away, he saw Callahan bend over a small push cart. Koppel rushed past the canisters and into the heated air. Callahan, you have to help me. The engineer, red and sweaty, appeared near collapse. John, put down the pistol. Where's the Hubrick? Look at you, you're sweating. This ship is being heated by the canisters. Callahan smiled and began climbing the catwalk ladders. When he reached the top, he pushed the code, opening the canister, and the bright blue light covered his face. Koppel watched in disbelief as the engineer bent his knees and dove toward the canister light. No! He turned and held out his pistol. Hubrick! Hubrick! Stop right there, Koppel! Koppel fired without looking, knocking down two security guards. He dashed for the freight platform. Pistol fire erupted around him as he slid across the platform. He crawled up the readout console and pushed more buttons to stop the collapse. They were all saying that he had just murdered Callahan. He moved away from the console and clawed his way up the service ladder to the engine cones. The prodigious energy hummed all around as he ran down the grid. At the first monitoring station, he activated a readout. In just 13 minutes, temperature inside the canisters would reach critical and the freighter would explode. John, this is Marsha. Her voice echoed over the ship's internal system. John, please, you're suffering from delusions. Put down the pistol. No harm will come to you. The Praktikan remained on a collision course or at best a gravitational skip into space. Koppel had two choices as he ran along the catwalks. By manually overriding the steering systems, he would divert the colony collision, buying time to slow the freighter. Or he could kill the Hubrick. He had 11 minutes before impact, probably less before the canisters reached a critical mass. He reached Sector 9, housing the primary steering systems. But as he activated the outside control computers, the Hubrick's voice resonated throughout the console. You will stay clear of the steering room, Koppel. 
It is only a matter of time before I find you. Murderer! There are 18 million inhabitants on SC-10. You are insane, Koppel. You have put the Freitas crew in peril, and you will die. Koppel removed another Painiza vial from his jumpsuit and swigged the orange liquid. Then he dropped it and the vial shattered when it hit the floor. He rushed to the sector hatch and secured it. As he ran back to the console, the clock in the corner screen counted down to critical mass. Worrying about the impact was irrelevant. On the steering room monitor, Wooden sat at one of the consoles, oblivious to the warning lights flashing around him. To his right, the Krontium's temperature threatened all their lives, as well as the colony. Stability is going negative. He saw the H-shaped colony, hundreds of kilometers long, set against a sweep of stars. Power systems shut down and the lights dimmed. For a few seconds, Koppel's mind went blank and he wondered if the Hubrick was attempting to break through his thoughts. Frantically, he inputted new instructions into the steering computers, but he fought a mass of conflicting impulses. Yes. The freighter veered ever so slightly, but enough to miss ST-10. You are very persistent, but it will do you no good. SC-10 will never receive the canisters, Koppel. Why are you doing this, dammit? He wiped the sweat from his brow. The temperature inside the ship was increasingly uncomfortable. I will surpass the effects of the pain easer. No. He looked in the viewer. The colony reported the Practican was heading directly toward its center. What have you done? What have you done? Koppel studied the reading. Somehow the Hubrick had taken over his thoughts. This is ludicrous. The chilling realization that the Hubrick might be in control shook him. He watched the warning lights flashing and counted down the seconds on the clock. You cannot escape me, Koppel. Koppel used all his strength to input the proper sequence to reverse the pressure gradient. A hidden pressure pulled at his fingers. One more equation would implement a reduction in pressure. He put his fingers to the keyboard but was jolted and thrown back across the room. His nerve endings tingled as he slowly opened his eyes. His vision still blurred. Marsher, Wooden, and Callahan looked down at him. Think he's all right, Skipper. Callahan, you're dead. In the canisters. And you have lost the bet, John. Bet? Marsha smiled as he sat up. You said you could do it. The colony. Koppel leaped to his feet and Callahan restrained him. Reduce the pressure gradient before it's too late. John, it's all over. The Hubrick won. Koppel looked across the steering room. The smooth Hubrick, transparent brain pulsing with light, hovered above the floor. The mind is easily controlled. Callahan smiled. You had terror in your eyes, like the ship was really going to blow up. Koppel kept staring at the Hubrick. Kill him now. What? asked Wooden. I think this wager has gone too far. The Hubrick is essential to the functioning of this freighter. Stop him now before it's too late. Koppel scanned the console readout. SC-10 came into range. Quickly he rushed over and drew up the canister information. There. There it is. Wooden looked at Callahan and crossed his arms. There what is? Pressure gradients increasing. Koppel spun around looking for a pistol. You have to kill the son of a bitch now. Those readings are normal, said Wooden. No. Koppel rushed the Hubrick and pounded. 
was unable to break through the impenetrable shell. Security guards surrounded him and pulled him back. My God, he couldn't take it. It's him, not the Hubrick, said Wooden. Bring him down for observation. Please, please believe me. The commissioner had informed the security engineers that relief was on the way. The practican was visually tracked now. The sleek green vessel had been traveling for four months with the emergency shipment. Now the colony had hope, but knowledge of the pending disaster would remain classified for two generations. Raised Commander Wooden on the channel, unable to comply. Communications are out, sir. An intense white light spread across the screen and the commissioner shielded his eyes. He ran to the observation window as the explosion spread from a central locus and slowly dissipated. Practican had disappeared off the screens. Space was dead. Your orders, Commissioner? The Commissioner tightened his brow and squinted at the stars. He spoke in a low, determined voice. Call the Hubrick. I need help. In My Image by Robert P. Fitton. The warehouse punch clock clicked past 5 p.m. Kluger, cigar pinched between his teeth, tapped his short, hairy fingers on the gray metal. Come on, come on, this thing must be stuck. Stevie yelled from the side office and Kluger turned. What are you waiting for, Christmas? Merrill isn't paying overtime. Kluger squinted and puffed the cigar until it glowed red. Busted my arse all afternoon, cutting down brush outside, getting ready to have the minimum wage guys clean them paint vats. I want out. I got things to do at home. Then punch out. I'd like to there, sport. The clock took his punch card. Our new great leader told me to wait without pay. Stevie shuffled papers on his desk and stood. He grabbed his briefcase and punched out ahead of Kluger. You don't answer to Herbert Frederick. Old man Merrill hired him to clean up this paint factory. Kluger leaned against the clock, but I think the bastard has it in for me. <laughs> Frederick has it in for everyone. Good night. Yeah, see ya, Stevie. Stevie moved down the narrow hall and pushed the outside glass door. As the door closed, Kluger heard the sharp click of Frederick's Galliani imported shoes hitting the staircase treads, and his sickening cologne followed him upstairs. Why would anyone stuff a silk handkerchief all fluffed up like a flower into his suit coat pocket? Frederick arched his back, his long slender nose pointed slightly skyward, and his lips pushed out as if he were going to kiss himself. Kluger, what are you doing dilly-dallying here? Kluger raised his bushy brows. Frederick, you told me to wait for you. Mr. Frederick, I gotta get home. My wife is waiting. Too bad. Please extinguish that filthy cigar. It's making me quite nauseated. Kluger stared at him, yanked the stub from his mouth, and dropped it into the sand bucket. He moved toward Frederick like a fighter about to begin the first round. You don't hear me telling you to get rid of that perfume you're wearing. Dear, dear Kluger, so set in his crude and rigid ways. 
He removed a neatly folded computer sheet from his inner pocket. What the hell is that? This, Kluger, is a systematic and rigorous study of your work habits. The evaluation and performance standard is, to say the least, lacking. Kluger stepped near his cologne-reeking face. Look, college boy, I worked here for the last 16 years. I know this factory inside and out. I don't need you coming in here and telling me what to do. A slow smile crossed Frederick's smooth face. I have the full backing of Mr. Merrill. If you value your job, you will do things my way. Bullshit to you and your phony report. Frederick unfolded the paper and placed it in Kluger's hands. Blood rushed to Kluger's cheeks as he tightened his facial muscles. Frederick's report accused him of dawdling on the job and costing the company thousands per month. Too much time talking to fellow employees. Work quote is not on time. I tell you, this is all bullshit. The tip of the iceberg, Kluger. I ain't no robot. We're not all perfect like you. I demand peak efficiency, Kluger, and I will get it. He handed Kluger a second sheet of paper. I've established, using my extensive business knowledge and foresight, a document of rules and regulations. You will follow these rules to the letter. Kluger glanced at the numbered regulations. No talking except on specific breaks? You gotta be shitting me. What the hell is this work quota? Can't do all this work in eight hours. You will or find employment elsewhere. You can't fire me, big man. He shoved the papers into Frederick's chest. You're bluffing. I have the power to ruin you, Kluger. Kluger wondered whether old man Merrill had really given Frederick so much power. Listen, I have a wife and four kids. Then I suggest that you tow the mark. Report to work 15 minutes early, unpaid, of course. Get my coffee going and put the Wall Street Journal on my desk. You're a son of a... Now, now, Kluger he said, grinning and raising his index finger. Secondly, you will be required to work till 6 p.m. with no overtime benefits since you are technically in management. You can't do this. Kluger clamped his fist and cocked his arm. Go ahead, Kluger. I sense you don't have the nerve to hit me. You need your paycheck to keep that tenement roof over your head. You'll pay for this. Kluger started down the hall to the outside door. I don't think so. <laughs> he laughed loudly as, as Kluger grasped the cold <laughs> doorknob. <laughs> Everything will be remade in my image. And you will work tonight or be fired. Kluger's body tensed and his head throbbed as he trudged to the punch clock. Frederick's high-pitched voice tugged at his frayed nerves. He was just tired enough to lose control and punch Frederick's face into a bloody mess. I've worked hard every day for the last 16 years. I am touched by your devotion. Tonight I have scheduled you to clean the paint vats. I can overlook your low output if you scour the vats. I'm a supervisor. My job isn't... Your job is what I say it is. He placed another computer sheet in Kluger's hands. This is yesterday's report. You didn't punch out. And we have quotas here that have not been completed. Kluger inhaled and grit his teeth. He shred the report with his bare hands and threw the pieces into the air. That's enough. I, of course, have other copies on the disc. You, Kluger, are on probation. You bastard. 
Kluger hooked his clenched fist into Frederick's jaw, lifting him upward. Frederick buckled at the knees and his eyes rolled as he hit the cement. Kluger stood over him with both fists locked tight. Get up! Frederick's blue eyes slowly opened and he focused. When he smiled this time, his deep laugh shook the room. <laughs> his eyes spun and the whites formed a buzzing red mass of conflicting internal energy. Kluger backed up toward the plant doors and then hit the doors at a full run. He leaped down the stairs. The high metal frame shelving above was packed with paint pallets stacked to the corrugated roof. His heart revved out of control as he ran, his mind fixated on Frederick's blazing eyes. He thought the energy some kind of trick, and then Frederick's voice modulated off the gray cylinder walls. Kluger! Kluger! All the doors are locked, Kluger! Kluger looked over his shoulder and ducked down a side aisle. In the silent warehouse, he shuffled back across the dust-covered cement, squatted, and hid in the shadows. Maybe the voice was a PA system and the trick with the eyes designed to scare him out of his job. He leaned his head against the metal support, but something creaked and slid above him. Plastic-wrapped paint buckets stacked on a pallet tilted. He rolled to his left as the paint careened over the shelf and burst apart on the cement, spraying green paint globs over his work clothes. Murderer! What's the matter, Kluger? Job got you down? Fluorescent light tubes along the metal ceiling flickered like lightning in a violent thunderstorm. He could slip outside if he climbed the warehouse stairs beyond the stacks. Instead, he crawled under the stacks and into the next aisle. Checking above, he raced by the huge paint vats and toward the outside office stairs along the wall to his left. He glanced back at the shelving as he grabbed the banister and started up the plastic stair treads. The upper fluorescent light tubes pulsed like a strobe light over the spacious warehouse. He slowed and stopped when he saw Frederick sitting alone on the metal stacks. You're going to die, Kluger. Kluger turned, but the next step crumbled like a crisp cracker and he, he fell into the dark maintenance room. He pushed his way through empty cans, lawnmowers, and rakes. A gas-powered chainsaw buzzed in the blackness. He tripped as the buzzing got louder and he scrambled to the outside door. His hands flew wildly up the frame. He pulled it open and he slammed it shut. In the pulsing light, the saw splintered the wood and sent sawdust and wood chips scattering. The buzzing suddenly stopped and Frederick's laugh haunted the building again. He sat atop a paint vat and the red fire in his eyes brightened. <laughs> Very good, Kluger. Now, where do you think you're going? Cat, got your tongue? <laughs> Let me out of here. I thought you were going to kill me, my friend. Please, my family needs me. Don't kill me. Should I kill you or completely possess you? Or both? <laughs> Kluger ran toward the shipping doors. The green automatic button switch on the wall did not function. He bent over and tried manually hoisting the large door, but it was locked in place. Something pinged on the metal above, and a paint lid dropped to the concrete. More silver metal lids sailed toward him at high velocity. He dove to his left and slid forward as the tinny lids smacked the doors. 
some stuck in the adjoining wallboard. He stumbled to his feet as one of the lids hit his shoulder, knocking him against the outside bay door. Another one grazed his brow and blood rolled down his cheek. Frederick's laughter continued unabated as Kluger retreated across the warehouse toward the raw materials bins. Here I am, Kluger. His giddiness stirred Kluger's anger. Frederick stood nonchalantly along the conveyors near the lunchroom. Kluger darted through the open doorway and back into the warehouse, realizing he needed to kill Frederick. He stroked his chin. The bay down the stacks to the upper offices looked clear. Before he could step forward, lids blew off the sealed paint cans and paint exploded onto the large floor. Huge plastic paint buckets and metal cans moved into the aisles. Kluger backed toward the vats. One of the loose cans slammed into his ankle bone and he now limped toward the wall phone. He dialed 911 and the line rang. With an unusual click, the voice of Herbert Frederick tap danced into his ear. Kluger dropped the phone and it hit the wall. As he turned, the receiver levitated before him, but shot out like a cannonball, wrapping the flexible metal line around his neck. He grabbed the line with both hands and tried to keep it from choking his air supply. Frederick spoke through the line again. That was only the beginning, Kluger. The line loosened and the receiver hung harmlessly around his neck. He unwound the line and prayed he had only imagined the last half hour. The lights above were clear and the paint cans and buckets all neatly stacked within the pallet plastic. Kluger wandered into the open area ahead of the stacks and scanned the warehouse. It was as if nothing had happened and Frederick was gone. The propane forklift engine started. Six yellow cab machines backed from their parked positions and looped in unison around the vats. He broke into a hobble when they accelerated over the concrete and he doubted whether he could successfully reach the stacks. With the forklifts on Kluger's heels, Frederick laughed again. <laughs> Kluger veered to his left, dove and gripped Frederick's ankles as he brought him down. He gripped his boss in a full Nelson and then thrust his body outward toward the approaching forklifts. Frederick cried out, his arms and legs spread apart as the center collided into his body. Kluger watched in astonishment as the left fork pierced through the back of Frederick's suit, producing a bloody, spatted blood smudge over the gray fabric. The machine edges were cut and the lifts rolled harmlessly to a stop. But Herbert, Frederick's body, like a stabbed hunk of meat on a dinner fork, hung lifeless. His head dipped into his chest and chunks of blonde hair were flung over his forehead. More blood saturated his vest fabric, and his well-manicured nails were deathly still. Kluger crawled into the forklift cab and started the engine. With Frederick firmly in place, he swung the lift around and drove toward the paint vats. He pushed the hydraulic as he neared the containers and raised Frederick's pierced form high into the warehouse. With the body positioned over the open vat, Kluger shut off the engine and forced his way up the metal stairs. Huge green drums of acid used for cleaning the vats were unopened on the metal grid. He glanced at the lift prongs sticking through Frederick's back as he rolled the barrel on its bottom. In the first aid station, he grabbed a pair of light-colored latex gloves and some goggles. Quickly, he returned and used the pliers to unscrew the barrel cap. He flung the cap inside the vat and strained to push the barrel over. The acid surged out the opening and into the tank. 
He repeated the procedure until he had emptied eleven fifty-five-gallon drums, and then he gazed down at his image on the wavy surface. He moved carefully down the metal stairs and started the forklift. With the hydraulic lever, he lowered Frederick's legs into the tank. Then he jammed the machine in reverse. He spun back, and Frederick's legs caught the tank edge. As the engine whined, his body splashed and bubbled into the acid. Soon it would be eaten away, and all remnants of Herbert Frederick's evil being would vanish forever. For three hours, Kluger sat at the Red Grill's bar stool. The football game had ended twenty minutes ago. He held the edges of a frosted beer mug and stared at the floor behind the bar. Music rocked the side speakers. A few couples danced on the parquet floor under the colored lights, and his wife was probably panicking by now. He slowly raised his head and looked at himself in the long mirror behind the liquor bottles. Four hours ago, he was a devoted father and good husband. Now the deep lines etched in his beard stubble completed the dazed look of a murderer. He could argue self-defense, but who would listen? He felt the stubble with his fingers. Fatigue had set in. Even his brows were less bushy. The dangling metal of a silver wrist bracelet slid over his fair skin as he lifted his mug. He clawed the bracelet chain when he saw HF inscribed into the shiny surface. No, not this. Unable to remove the bracelet, he left the beer mug on the counter and hurried to the men's room. He pounded the soap dispenser and smeared a green goop over his wrist. The chain was stuck. In the cold bathroom reflection, his dark eyes were rimmed with an encroaching blue luminescence. The smoothness of his chin had spread upward, effectively leveling his beard, and his nose had lengthened. Fine blonde strands were interspersed with his black, bristly hair. He slowly held up his smooth hands and gawked at the perfectly trimmed nails. I ain't Herbert Frederick. Oh, please, God. The green uniform was bulky and inappropriate, but easily replaced with a number of items in his condominium closet. He ran his fingertips gently over his light hair, cropped midway at the ears. Fleeting hint of darkness in his eyes was washed away when he blinked. He checked his asymmetrical array of sparkling teeth and smiled. I am Herbert Frederick. common element of tonight's stories is control and thus freedom. Montessori, he didn't start the school, doesn't think about the ramifications of building his malls. On the plus side, everyone has a nice place to shop with lots of things to buy. But Montessori is so focused on his job that it becomes a force in itself. In its wake, he may have chewed up the landscape or displaced locals from their homes. And the money? It doesn't really matter. He's like a machine that never stops. The hubric, artificial intelligence and thinking of you, in the end, controls humans. When the world becomes more the formation of the hubric rather than reality, freedom is just an accident. And finally, what Frederick does to Kluger and the paint factory demonstrates a complete loss of freedom as Nick Kluger becomes Herbert Frederick. On and on and on and on. Next time we'll hear two novellas from Compilation, Shootout at Coldwater Canyon, and Read Roy is Rights. Shootout is about a little guy, Al McGinnis, in a science fiction setting, struggling against the oppressors. Read Roy is Rights is a rather basic science fiction story. 
but the question of the rights of artificial intelligence becomes paramount in deep space. This is Robert P. Fitton thinking of you or not. See you next time on Fitton on the Air. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.